Okay, welcome back to the third episode of On the Nose. Uh, I'm Arielle Angel. I'm the editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents. Um, This week, uh, I'm joined by um, Mari Cohen, assistant editor, Ari Brastaff, culture editor, and Josh Leifer, contributing editor to Jewish Currents. And we're going to be talking about the very, very long week that the pro-Israel establishment has had, starting with last Sunday's March on the Capitol, uh, the No Fear March Against Anti-Semitism, which drew kind of a pathetic couple hundred people, um, which is really a sad number of people to gather on the National Mall, um, (laughs) and uh, followed by um, a study that came out of the uh, Jewish electorate, uh, which showed especially young Jewish uh, a- attitudes and opinions towards Israel as being a lot farther to the left uh, than many of us, and I, I think even among this group, supposed. And uh, third, the meltdown over Ben and Jerry's deciding not to sell in the occupied West Bank um, and in settlements. So I thought we would just start by taking these in chronological order and talking a bit about uh, the No Fear March. Hi, I'm Mari. I'm the assistant editor, and I can provide a little bit of background on this rally that we're talking about. My understanding from the uh, reporting on it is that it kind of started with groups more to the right, like Stand With Us, Zionist Organization of America, that were trying to put together this rally. Um, I think maybe it initially started with just like one activist, but the groups that first got on board were this right wing, these right wing groups. So it got branded as a right wing effort. Um, and then Alicia Wiesel, uh, the son of Ellie Wiesel, got involved um, and sort of tried to make it a bigger thing. Um, And he was able to get more mainstream groups like the Anti-Defamation League, American Jewish Committee on board. Um, But they were trying to make it this sort of like broader bipartisan effort, get, you know, Americans for Peace Now, J Street, these more leftist progressive groups on board. And they weren't able to do that, I think, because it like started coming from the right. Um, They these more progressive groups saw it as this perhaps more like right wing effort that was really about conflating anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism and were less interested in signing on. So from the beginning, it was sort of, you know, beset by these various factional issues. And then they did get the major denominations involved, like reform, conservative, orthodox. But I think partly just like because of a lot of the infighting, it, it's, you know, they were they were really not able to turn out many people for this. I mean, we're going to talk about why we think that is. The organizers reported 2,000 uh, Alicia himself wrote an op-ed in the JTA and reported 3,000 people, uh, but uh, the organizers, you know, famously like to report large numbers, and the Washington Post said, you know, they saw like a few hundred or several hundred were there, which was also um, kind of the number that was repeated in op-eds from across the political spectrum complaining about the turnout. So it seems like, you know, they did not get a lot of people to come. I watched a little bit of a YouTube video of the rally. Did not look super impressive numbers-wise. They also famously put out a statement that was just sort of like, we are big tent, except if you are not a Zionist. Um, So 
I mean, it's just sort of like the classic Jewish establishment definition of big tent or pluralism or whatever. Everyone except for what we now know is sort of like the full quarter of Jews who are less than thrilled about the conflation of Judaism with an ongoing military occupation. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting. The right is mad. Like, the left is like, okay, this thing you know, is really messed up and we don't agree with a lot of what was said. And also, haha, like not that many people showed up. And the right is also like, oh my gosh, you like couldn't even get people to come out for this rally. It's because you ceded too much to the left. I mean, there's just all sorts of, you know, it kind of really is an example of the way that like, I mean, one thing we also learned from this poll that we're going to talk about is just like the extent to which the American Jews are really politically polarized on both ends. Um, and so it's basically like, they tried to basically make it, they made a statement, I think, conceding to groups like the URJ to be like, anti-Semitism is connected to other imp- oppressions and that they oppose other oppressions as well. And the right was like really mad about that because they were like, this takes the focus off anti-Semitism. So they can't even really like find, it's very hard for them to find ways to coalesce around anything. And the right's like, well, you didn't get enough people to show up, like people on tablet um, Algemeiner are writing stuff like that. Like you didn't get enough people to show up because you were not hardline enough. So it kind of exposes a lot of, a lot of discontent on multiple sides of the political spectrum. I mean, I think the politics of who is there and like the speakers is sort of interesting in the sense that they, they kind of went with this radical centrist vibe, but like that positioning is literally the least well-represented view among American Jews as far as polling goes. Like these are all people who are like the left anti-Semitism is as much a problem as right anti-Semitism. Like if there was a big picture extrapolation, like that would be what they were saying, whether it was Alicia Wiesel or like Megan McCain being there. But the people... The percentage of the American Jewish population, at least according to the Jewish Electorate Institute poll, who like have those views is very, very small. Like there aren't a lot of it's like the centrists imagine that they speak for a silent majority, but they actually speak for a very small segment of like the American Jewish community writ large. Like Barry Weiss has and whose politics align with this sort of has this pretension or like says almost like it's an incantation that she's representative of the, of the silent majority of American Jews, but that's not borne out in polling. And I also think like someone like Alicia Wiesel, who's got a background in Goldman Sachs, who's like spent a lot of time around the Jewish organizational world, thinks they're really important and encounters people all the time who know who he is, but doesn't realize that no one outside of this very rarefied world knows who he is. And so there was like, we're going to do this big thing and I'm a big thing. and I've got all these mockers who are like behind me and we're going to do a rally and then no one shows up because they don't realize that there's this massive disconnect between like people operating within that very insular Jewish philanthropic world and like you're just average American Jew who has very little contact with those organizations. Well, it sounds like also like from what we've been hearing, even the bigger groups were not actually that interested in participating in this rally for reasons that I actually don't understand. I mean, th- like the ADL has been beating the drum about heightened anti-Semitism since uh, the violence in May in Israel-Palestine and basically trying to connect that violence to anti-Zionism or, or sort of criticism of Israel, uh, which may or may not be, you know, the motivating factor. I think it's it's probably likely that some of it is. And, and you know, of course, there was sort of this high-profile stabbing of a Chabad rabbi in Boston. Um, and so I'm, 
I am sort of confused as to why the ADL might want to distance itself from from this kind of rally. I mean, maybe just because they recognize that it didn't really have the institutional base, like maybe because they anticipated the fact that it would show weakness, which is what it ultimately did. Um, I mean, is the ADL ever particularly good at like popular mobilization in that way? Do they ever really like turn out a lot of people at rallies? I feel like they're very good at like lobbying and they produce a lot of reports and they shape the media narrative. But they're not like I don't know if like this sort of like grassroots rally mobilization is really in their wheelhouse. But obviously the American Jewish mainstream community has done it before. I mean, like the forward is comparing these numbers to, you know, 2002 when 100,000 people attended a solidarity rally in support of Israel or um, 250,000 on behalf of Soviet Jews in 1987 compared to this, uh, you know, somewhere around maybe a thousand. We don't really know. But I don't know if like that's really a very recent thing for a lot of these major Jewish organizations in terms of turning out mass mass political mobilization actually on the streets. Well, that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. Like it is a long time ago. Not the Soviet Jewry movement is another it's like as it's like that's a different political epoch and then the Intifada is 2002 it's almost 20 years ago and I think that the Jew, American Jewish community's mass mobilization muscle is really attenuated. I mean, I think the most recent comparison if we were going to think about it would be the January 2021 after that wave of anti-Semitism and that pulled like generously we'll say 25,000 people in New York and that was a big ADL stamped federation stamped but they also bust in a ton of like day school people and shuls and communities. I mean, it was there was more grassroots communal buy-in but at the same time 25,000 people in New York, the most Jewish city in the Western Hemisphere Atmosphere is also not a lot of people. Like, I think that if there is any indication, like, the these are not events that a lot of American Jews feel strongly about attending. Um, and like, as we all sort of experienced when we were at the um, the one in. Brooklyn in 2020, like that was a really right wing protest. I mean, we had to like leave the procession part of it because people recognized that some of the people we were marching with were, if not ours. And then like this Kahanis contingent was like threatening to beat up. It was like, it was a horrible experience, but it was like, there isn't a lot of, even there, like there's not a lot of, um, common ground to have one of these sorts of things. And like even the big tent one sort of devolved into shouting between like Trump and non-Trump, um, Jews and I think the pro-Trump Jews were like way overrepresented because they're the people who like tend to want to show Jewish muscle at these public protests. I also think the branding of all of these is always so funny. It's like they're calling this rally no fear, but at the same time it's like this entirely Judeo-pessimist ideology that's actually telling Jews, no, you should be fearful. You need to be afraid. Anti-Semitism is everywhere. The Met, like the whole thing doesn't make any sense uh, in terms of what they're trying to tell the audience. Like it's the opposite of no fear. It's like we're so fearful that we have to like do immoral things to secure the Jewish future. I'm just struck by something that we've talked about on staff from time to time, which is the way that it seems like there's not a lot of charismatic Zionist kind of spokespeople at this point in the U.S. Um, I think like this is a point that that Josh, like you've made sometimes there just aren't a lot of people to even have that that kind of personal level um, 
ability to either draw a crowd or attract media the way that there used to be. And I think that the the shift from Elie Wiesel, who, you know, presumably would have been a central figure in a rally like this, um, you know, before his death, which was just a few years ago, and his son, who just seems like this kind of nobody who, you know, wrote um, the the saddest op-ed um, after, <laughs> after the march <laughs> saying, essentially, um, well, we tried and um, <laughs> it sucks that it sucks that everybody hates us, um, that we're beleaguered from the left and the right. But, you know, we're doing we're doing the best we can. And by the way, I never wanted to lead this anyway. I, I just wanted to go to one. But, you know, they made me do it. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that's like a really powerful show of leadership. And, um, you know, I, I it occurs to me that this is partly like a, a post-Trump difference too, because you had people like Alan Dershowitz who would have also presumably been um, important figures uh, at a march like this in the past. And, you know, they're they're fully discredited now. I mean, I, I think we've had a hypothesis within Jewish current staff, certainly. I, I, I'll speak for myself. I've had a hypothesis that, you know, like we know that the the kind of silent majority of, of Jewish uh, Americans are progressive and secular and, and, and way more progressive than kind of like regular Americans, uh, except on Israel. And I've sort of always felt like part of that was just uh, default, um, that there was really nothing pushing them. There was no media that was pushing them. There, they, they really were allowed to be um, insulated from whatever those pressures are. Uh, because they were influencing the overall environment around this conversation more than it was influencing them. And I I think that that simply isn't true anymore and that you are starting to see these people move. I mean, we were talking this morning about J Street um, and about the way in which, you know, a couple years ago they were really opposed to selective boycotts of the settlements. And now suddenly with this Ben and Jerry's thing, they're really like staking um, some of their clout on this to try to shore up support. And I think that shows kind of, I mean, I think we've been kind of saying this is where the wind is blowing for a long time without really having any proof of it. Um, But I think that these kinds of things and, and the decline of that, of the influence of the kind of figure you're talking about, Ari, really speaks to that. Um, you know, I, I was really struck as like a companion piece to, um, Alicia Wiesel's piece, uh, the Jeff Balaban piece in, in tablet, which I highly recommend just cause it's a really fabulous romp. Um, but also because like he says a lot of things where I'm like, yeah, you, you get him, you know, in terms of like things that we would say, except then he'll follow it up with like, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that we would never agree with, but just about like the total ineptitude and weakness of these institutions. You know, I think there was a time when someone like Jeff Balaban would actually feel represented by these institutions. Um, What I think is striking is that actually no one does. No, that's like what I was thinking also with, with like the radical center politics, because like Jeff, as a orthodox like political operator and the constituents he represents, they also do show up in the public opinion, right? Like that's the twenty to thirty percent that also is like annexationist and one statist for Jews. And like I think that 
and the you know quarter to a third of the American Jewish community that votes for Republicans, who are almost entirely Orthodox. And I think that as the Orthodox community has become more politically assertive, they've also grown frustrated with the bipartisan radical centrism of the of the establishment because they want heart they want red meat they want the hardcore jewish power politics and and they don't want and they've also been co-opted by like the trump media uh and republican like brainwashing generally and so they're also like not really grounded in the same political reality as the establishment who still sort of walk around in like vaguely liberal democratic circles. And then you also have on the other side, the, you know, the, the like hardcore liberal, I don't know what you would say, like probably more than half of American Jewry who like, whose political identity and religious identity is the democratic party and are not going to, and are really not going to accept like, um, a, a communal like vibe that views the Democrats as the main source of anti-Semitism, which is what Balaban and the and people who are in the Orthodox and right-wing media side of the Jewish community think that like J- Joe Biden is enabling pogroms because he hasn't censured Ilhan Omar. Like that's what is happening in that corner. Right. I mean, the biggest the biggest uh, you know Zionist figurehead speaker was Meghan McCain who is a non-Jewish Republican, you know, that, who is not an except, you know, like to the extent that like suburban Jewish moms watch The View, they are not identifying with Meghan McCain, you know? No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's that's super interesting. I mean, that almost seems like a, a way that the U.S. could start to look more like the situation in like Germany where, you know, the, the anti-Semitism czar is uh, this... Uh, totally right-wing, uh, philo-Semitic, non-Jew. Felix um, Klein. Felix Klein, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I just want to, f- just for fun, read this one choice quote from, from Balaban because I think it's so great. The dismal outcome was inevitable as the No Fear campaign suffered from at least two obvious flaws. Its message is inane and its leadership is unserious. Sorry, I just think that's so funny and good. Um because it is inane and that leadership is unserious. But then again, <laughs> whatever comes after that uh, is truly insane. This is our horseshoe theory of of Jewish politics. Well, maybe this is a good segue to the horseshoe theory of the of the uh, or not the horseshoe theory, but, uh, you know, just the polarization of that elect Jewish electorate institute uh, poll, because something that we did see, right, is. 20% is for one equal state uh, and 20% is for annexation without equal rights. Um, so what do we do with that? Yeah, I think maybe we should just give some quick background on the poll too for we've been sort of referring to it throughout this episode, but this was a Jewish electorate institute poll that uh, came out last week and caused a lot of stir in the communal discourse, but it was conducted between June 28th and July 1st among 800 voters. The Jewish Electorate Institute, it should be noted, is a project of the uh, Jewish Democratic Council of America, which we can get back to later because I think it's kind of interesting in some ways which results the Democrat Jewish Democrats are really excited about here and which ones they are not saying a peep about in their promos. Um, but 
I think so basically like there's a lot of parts of this poll that I think are pretty similar to like they asked a lot of political questions trying to get a portrait of the electorate and there's similar questions to like what's been asked in previous polls I mean things around like support for Biden emotional attachment to Israel that kind of thing and a lot of those results are very consistent with what we've seen in previous polls but most polls when they're talking about Jews don't or when they're surveying the Jewish community, as um, we've found in our reporting, they tend to, they don't ask more granular political questions around Israel. And this poll did. It kind of snuck them in, like it snuck them in, like not even really the Israel section. It was like this section about things that you think are anti-Semitic, but then it sort of got at people's political opinions about Israel. But basically, there's a couple of questions that I think are kind of interesting to go over. Um, Similar to other surveys, 62% um, of the people surveyed said they were very attached to Israel, 38% less attached. Um, In terms of aid, this will come up later, maybe when we talk about Ben and Jerry's a little bit and like, you know, the settlements perhaps, but this question of uh, conditional aid, 71% of those surveyed said that they think aid to Israel is very important, 25% said not important. And then 58% support restricting aid so it can't be used to expand settlements and 25% oppose. Um, so, and also it should just be noted for like all of these numbers, like as one might expect, like when you look at just the Orthodox, like, you know, the numbers totally flip where a majority, you know, say the aid shouldn't be restricted, that kind of thing. If you look at youth also, the numbers become very different because youth are more generally more left on all of these issues. Yeah, exactly. And then as you then as Ariel was just referring to, they ask about what people want for an ultimate solution. You've got 61% who would prefer two state solution, so that it still is kind of the majority consensus, but 21% who prefer one democratic state with equal rights for everyone that's not identified as a Jewish state. And I think that's pretty striking because, you know, a lot of times the discourse, as we've seen, it tends to be like, oh, 95% of American Jews are Zionists. Um, and, you know, we've kind of poked holes in some of that before, but it's pretty clear that we've got 20% of the electorate of the, I keep saying the electorate, but it's like not the electorate. It's this, you know, we've got 20% of Jews here in this poll saying that they'd prefer this one democratic state, which is, you know, you could argue it's a Zionist position, but I think, you know, you could also very much argue that that's an anti-Zionist position. And that, but then you also have 19% saying that they just want Israel to annex the West Bank and that basically Palestinians will not have national voting rights and it will be a Jewish state. So you've kind of, that's kind of this polarization where like things are moving um, sort of towards the edges on both sides. And then finally, they sort of basically asked people about whether they agreed with different statements around Israel and whether they were, thought they were anti-Semitic. And then some of the things that were really striking is that um, 25% of respondents said that they found, thought that Israel was an apartheid state. 22% said that they thought Israel was committing genocide against the Palestinians. And 34% say that they thought Israel's treatment of Palestinians was similar to racism in the United States. And then among Jews under 40, those numbers are even more striking. 20% actually also said that 20% of Jews under 40 said that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. (laughs) 33% say Israel's committing genocide. 
38% say Israel's committing apartheid and 43% say similar to racism against Palestinians. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. I just, I don't know. I don't know why I'm laughing. No, they're, they're, it's funny because their numbers that if you had asked me like last week, I would have not been, I would have never been able to come up with this. And like we spend all day, all of our lives talking about like what do Jews under 40 think? And the idea that 20% of the Jews under 40 say Israel has no right to exist. Like that's the most extreme position that like I'd ever heard anyone take. And like most people I know are like hardcore, I don't know, like lefty anarchists or like tankies or people like that who are like no state has any right to exist. And like, or, you know, I was talking to some people who are involved in If Not Now about this and it's like, I don't, I, part of If Not Now is like DNA or didn't, I don't know, like isn't geared towards this reality. Maybe that's not true, but I feel like there was the assumption that this, this out, these poll, I mean, let me, like, I'm, I'm rambling, but like these poll number, polling numbers outflank what was considered the leftist, leftmost um, limit of Jewish communal um, opinion by a lot, I think. That's, that's my take on this. I mean, it's amazing, too, because you have like Mariah Kaplan and some who's in If Not Now, works for If Not Now, um, in some, I don't know, report on this. I can't remember which one. It was in the forward, I think. In the forward. Yeah, like we don't know what's happening there. <laughs> you know, like it's definitely, I mean, when when the uh, Movement for Black Lives platform came out using the word genocide, I mean, like it tore If Not Now apart. I mean, like people were, re- I remember just like the heart rending conversations that people were having, you know, people who themselves are descendants of Holocaust survivors and stuff like that, and who were very committed to justice in Palestine, but, um, and very committed to the movement for black lives, but, but, uh, were really uncomfortable with the use of this word. Um, and it's pretty interesting. I mean, I think there, there's a few questions here that, that come up, um, in in light of all of this and, and a lot of it has to do a lot of the establishment people are really concerned about education you know like we we must be failing in israel education if this is what people think and then of course you have other people who are like well if they really knew what was going on the numbers would be even higher um but there is i, I do think that the question about genocide does sort of raise um is sort of an interesting um case study in terms of education, uh, someone that, an academic that Josh was, uh, or I'll let Josh kind of summarize some of what an academic that you were corresponding with was talking about regarding the genocide debate in particular. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this is related, I was just gonna say it's related to what I think we try to, what I think the, if not now piece that, uh, Aaron Freeman wrote was trying to get at that, like what you're talking about, Mm Ariel, about if the people in If Not Now struggling around the term genocide in 2016 when the Movement for Black Lives platform came out. I think that was a reflection of how a lot of people who were involved in If Not Now still had political formations that were shaped by the engagement with mainstream institutions and mainstream Jewish life, the camps, day schools, all of that. And that for the most part, the people involved in If Not Now weren't from outside of the community or people who didn't really have any interface with the institutions or with Jewish education period. And so I was, after I tweeted a little bit about this, uh, um, an academic reached out to me and sent me a few emails. And I thought he had some interesting points about the, there is a whole segment of the American Jewish population that really is outside of the community period. And they're getting like, where does his 
his hypothesis about where this genocide number comes from is that you is that these are young Jews who are primarily getting their information about Israel Palestine from social media and from Palestinian social media in particular. I think that's compelling because I don't know even in my own life other than like as reporting on this, I don't know actually a lot of people who would say that Israel is committing a genocide other than a few of the sort of like more strident pro-Palestine activists on Twitter, like most people I engage with day to day, whether they're Palestinian policy analysts or is or like Israeli or whatever, they mostly try tend to shy away from from that particular terminology. But I guess the one place where we have kind of seen it flourish without like a lot of critical engagement has been uh, has been social media. Uh, and it's funny that like just to hear uh, David Harris say like we need to improve Israel education, it's like. Jewish education in America writ large has always has long been a joke. Like it's not just Israel education that's failed. Like most American Jews don't have that kind of like literacy about their own identities. And so I guess it's, I would say the other way, like it shouldn't actually be so, so surprising that these numbers are as determined as they are by what's happening on social media, because that really is where you know, if this is any indication, like a third of American Jews' primary engagement with their Jewish identities is happening. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, there's there's almost two different intersecting conversations here. Um, uh, in that the percentage around um, saying Israel's committing genocide in particular brings up one is about whether that is in fact a claim that you know that we would want to get behind, let's say, um, or kind of what are the political stakes of that claim, which uh, is something that is, uh, I think, just actually very much up for debate among people who have no qualms at all um, about saying Israel's an apartheid state, Israel is um, a settler colony, but but genocide, I mean, uh, this is, I think, maybe a conversation for another time. But um, uh, I was talking to one of our contributors, Zoe Samudzi, about this um, several weeks ago when we were discussing um, getting into some of this language um, during the recent Gaza war. And, you know, and Zoe, who uh, who's like a scholar of genocide, among other things, um, said, you know, when I when I said kind of point blank, like, kind of like, what do you think? <laughs> Yay or nay? Uh, she, um, um, she said something that I thought was so interesting, which is that genocide is actually a different kind of term than a lot of these other terms. Um, uh, like, like settler colonialism, like apartheid, um, and so forth. It, it, it really has, um, a very particular legal meaning, um, that comes out of the post-Holocaust moment and the kind of international order that was created then and the, the, the order, you know, the international law that was created then. And so, um, and, and actually that international legal framework in itself, um, has often favored Western colonizing forces and um, and sort of depoliticized what genocide even means to begin with. And so her take was kind of like, it may be less of a relevant question um, 
is Israel committing genocide? And more of a relevant question, is genocide a useful category to think with at all to describe the destruction of peoples and their, and their worlds? Um, if it winds up not seeming to apply to the situation in which Palestinians and their world uh, is being destroyed. And so, um, so I thought that was super interesting. And, you know, again, it's saying, you know, that might be a, a conversation to get into more another time. I think the other question that the use of genocide raises um, as it's coming out in this poll um, is, is uh, more related to what Ariel and Josh were just talking about in terms of um, a, a sort of a very rough taxonomy that um, that's been coming up in conversation of the sort of gap between anti-Zionists or um, let's say American Jews who are very critical of Israel and are coming at those politics from a place of sort of intense engagement with um, the American Jewish establishment, often because they come from that world. And then on the other hand, American Jews who um, who have come to an anti-Zionist politics without much engagement with that world, um, but rather just through generally being, you know, leftist progressives um, and having just kind of absorbed that politics um, in a, in a, I, I guess you could say, um, a, a less parochial way, but also I think often a less, um, a way that is less in touch with the, the contours of the fights within Jewish politics and, and that, or within, within American Jewish politics. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, it's a really interesting split that I've, I've seen really opening, um, a law recently. And I think it's productive actually, because there's no reason that, um, I, I, I mean, actually I think it's there, there's, uh, there, I've had interesting moments of tension since I'm in the, the former category, I've had interesting moments of tension, with friends in the latter category who are like, oh my God, like we don't fucking care about that. What is like, what is this Jewish establishment? We don't care. Like I'm a Jew. Why should I like, I don't need to create my politics around Israel, Palestine or anything else in relation to this establishment that does not represent me. It's like, you almost hear them saying like, what, like we don't have a Pope, like what? <laughs> What is the conference of presidents? Like, right. what is it? Like, yeah, right, 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 exactly. Right. Like, no one's ever heard of. I mean, it's a joke, right? So, so yeah. So I think, but then on the other hand, you know, I have, I have sometimes kind of said back, well, <laughs> yes, but in terms of just an analysis of power, like, if we want to win here, like, if we, to the extent that, like, as a Jew in the present moment, one is implicated in the subordination of Palestinians, then it does seem like it's, you know, incumbent upon oneself to, like, have some kind of relationship to the forces of power that are 
um, you know, that are doing that in your name, right? And I know this is all the old, very related to the the old debates around like if not now strategy and so forth. Um, and I'm not I'm not saying like you know oh that means the answer is like we have to go in and like change the the you know take on the institutions um, as such or something like that. Like I think it's fine to disengage, but but there is something about. Um, use it. I guess this is what the word genocide is like setting off, right? It's like, it's like there, there's, there's something that feels nonspecific about it or not connected to, I guess, um, the anti-Zionist framework that is actually. It feels untethered. It feels a little untethered to like the movement and like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot that I'm thinking about this. I mean, like, it seems to me, I, I've been reading a little bit, even just in the last couple of days, preparing for this conversation about the conversation around genocide. And it seems like, um, you know, part of the conversation is really just like there, there, it is a legal framework, but it seems like, and I, I'm not an expert on this, so I could be totally off here. But it seems like there are some things that apply really directly and some things that apply less directly. And, and and but also there is kind of like a a very staggering violence that is coming from that is, you know, planned and that is intending to sort of like break down this group of people to fragment them, to displace them, to all of these other things. And there's a lot of questions about, like, is ethnic cleansing on its own genocide and all of this kind of thing? Um and but but the question really comes down to like if we apply this conversation if we apply this word really broadly then like does it mean anything at all you know like we need to preserve the integrity of the word genocide so that we can actually apply it when something is actually happening um and it seems to me like i'm i feel even though i don't even though, i feel very strongly that there is like genocidal actions being taken out with genocidal intent um and and that like that may not add up to like a full genocide or something in like my own idiosyncratic definition but i'm okay with using the word because any amount of like the the word is intended to be used to mobilize resources in order to stop the thing and whatever is happening over there is like sufficiently bad that that we should probably try to stop it or mobilize all those resources to do so. Sorry, go ahead, Josh. No, I want to object. I'm getting somewhere. I want to object to that because, uh, I think okay. I, because I think there are two uses for a term like this and they're different. And, and I think what you were, when you were talking, it was surfacing like the, uh, a conflict between the two or like, and I think this is related to like a meta, a meta conversation about our own role as Jewish currents. But it's like, I think you're right, certainly that, and we've been seeing this play out that genocide is an effective mobilizing rhetoric. But I also think that like as intellectuals, as journalists, as whatever thought leaders you want to say, like we also have an obligation to try to um, convey as, dis a, as, as descriptive, detailed and accurate uh, portrayal of what's happening on the ground as possible. And so, for example, like, you know, I personally ha think that like the late Israeli sociologist Baruch Kimmerling's term politicide is more accurate because if you look it's at the way that Israel has planned its policies towards the Palestinians, it's not necessarily bent on exterminating Palestinians qua Palestinians as biological beings, but as a nation, as a people, while keeping in some instances like their physical 
survival in the land. I mean, there are different tendencies, and I agree that there is genocidal intent that there are gener- and there are genocidal like Israeli politicians who talk in that terms. But I think like I think there is nuance and complexity if I were to write and try to analyze and give an account of what the like state's reason, like the Israeli government's main objective and how it really is interacting with the Palestinians. But the the other thing I wanted to say about that, the reason I think it's related to like the current meta conversation, this takes us a little bit of field from the, the genocide conversation, but it's like, I don't want to, I, th- I don't think this is projecting too much when I say like, we all had to learn a little bit about the establishment when we started working at Jewish Currents and began to like, right. And like, what does that mean actually for how our role how we relate to like most American to a broader American Jewish audience. Like, is there something in our own focus on these organizations that actually cuts us off from the audience we want to reach? Because we have like gone through this process where we're now like high information, high engagement leftist Jews. But like most of the people who are sympathetic to our politics are I don't I don't I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but are like are lower information just because they're not like reading the minutes from like Jewish organizations or trying to figure out how the hell do people get elected through WZO elections, which is an organization that like 4% of American Jews probably know about. And so we spend all of our time doing this and like getting engaged in the arcana of like the communal establishment organizations when like maybe there's something else and more urgent and more pressing and related to American Jews lives that we should be focusing on. I mean, that's like a bracketed side question. Well, I, I do want to, I, I, I was actually heading there, so I'm sorry that I that we got sidetracked. I mean, first of all, Josh, I do agree with you that it matters, but what I'm saying is, is that there seems to be the debate here is actually about whether genocide should be broadly applied or specifically applied. And I'm saying that, like, I don't mind the broad application of genocide because I think that genocide is a part of human, like, is, is a part of the way that nations interact with one another, and it, it is kind of normal. And so, like, the idea of it being normalized doesn't bother me. And there are very broad, like, like points in terms of these definitions that actually do describe what's happening in, in part, you know? And, and actually, the, the definition itself says destruction in whole or in part, with intent or whatever. Like, they are really broad. So, like, I, I'm not saying this on the account of like, let's just do it because it's, you know, it's convenient or it helps. I'm saying that like, I'm not opposed to a broad definition, period. The question is whether it matters that there is this group of people that that are kind of quote unquote on our side that actually aren't steeped in these kinds of debates. And and I'm I was sort of trying to t- put on like the hats of like the Yehuda Kurtzers or Yale Hirshhorns, these people who are kind of like our center right um, interlocutors, I guess, I don't know, Um, you know, in terms of like lamenting the lack of education. And I do think that there's a way um, that that could be bad. Um, We're like, I do think it's actually our responsibility to speak to them in our language as opposed to in theirs, because um, because I, I do think that there's a way, especially like if we're talking about the Internet as being like a mediator or like an interlocutor in, in all of this, or just sort of the medium by which information is coming out, then like really you're talking about like loud voices on Twitter or something or on Instagram. And like, and those voices become, you know, when people say like, listen to Palestinians, it's just like, which Palestinians, who, like, who are you actually talking about? And usually people are talking about a few of these accounts or something. Um, and, and like, to the extent that we actually want to have a real conversation about what happens and not sort of like a reflective, a reflexively, 
militant conversation, and I'm not afraid of the militancy, but just of the reflexiveness of that conversation, we need to be able to say, like, okay, like, let's, let's dig in here, you know? Um, because I think otherwise then the conversation becomes really too narrow, like, or too uh, homogenous in an artificial way or something. Does that make sense? I'm not sure what you mean, actually. Well, I, I just I just mean to say, like, like uh, we are we are the minority in the conversation, uh, you know, with Jews who are less engaged, um, who who like are kind of learning or picking up this language from the Internet. Basically, the people who are basically saying, like, um, you know, apartheid and genocide are essentially the same thing or, or, you know, I don't know what genocide is, but this is happening. Um, and, and the question is whether we should sort of move to where they are, or sort of like meet them where they are, or like, or even whether there's a problem that they are there, that they are in that place without a lot of education, like whether we're just like welcome aboard or whether we're sort of like, hey, like maybe you should learn some of this stuff. And I'm saying, I think there is there is a danger to, to that position being the dominant position because it be, because there's a danger of sort of like purity politics taking over of like, of like a kind of uh, reflexive militancy without any relationship to what's going on on the ground um, to like a conflation of like a few loud voices on Twitter to quote unquote, like the Palestinian position writ large, which is you know, not the case. So I think we do need to push back a little bit on some of this stuff in the name of and reclaim some of that nuance also because it's because it, it doesn't accurately reflect the, the the ground that politics is being fought on or whatever. Well, well, OK, here's the thing, though, that I think um, we inevitably circle back to in any conversation about polling is like, what is the actual relationship between what people say, what people tell pollsters and um, what they actually believe in, you know, a meaningful way and how they act in the world. And I mean, this is obviously something that um, I, we've, we've written about this before. Mari's written about this. Um, in terms of, you know, the kind of like a Jewish polling industry um, in particular. But I think there's also just a, there's a much larger question about what polling actually produces as opposed to merely reflects um, about popular opinion. And this has been, you know, this has been a big debate on the left in the past few years. Um you know, there's, a, I think, sometimes a an over-reliance on, um, on polls. Leftists will sometimes celebrate, um, you know, polls that say 60% of uh, Americans support universal health care or whatever the, the statistic may be, right? And that's great. It's great to, it's, it's, um, it's morale boosting to hear, Hey, like the people are, um, are on our side, but then what that, but it's actually like declaring victory too soon because it, um, 
it's it, it it then suggests oh all we need to do is like mobilize them to you know vote for the next Bernie Sanders and then like and then it's just going to happen the thing will just will you know will call itself into being this is the whole like left populist strategy that has been um kind of much much debated and 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 you know i think at least at a national level um seems to have failed for the moment um of uh, you know of trying to imagine an electorate that is actually further to the left in like a meaningful way than it actually is. And, and, and that's because polling can't capture actual like a social institution building. It just captures what's being asked. And so I think that that's what we ultimately come down to in a, in a question like this. It's like, yeah, like I don't, I don't know um, what, for for the people who responded by saying Israel's committing genocide, like, like we don't know what those people meant by that, um, because that's not what a poll can tell you. And it seems like your point too is we don't also we also don't know what they're prepared to do about it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's the biggest. That's the biggest like the thing that crosses over from like the lesson of the Bernie years is that these poll like these polls don't assess the kind of political education or engagement that the people who are responding in them like have. And so I don't think it's likely at all that the people met many of the, that the majority of the people who said that Israel is committing genocide are going to go and show up at the next JVP rally. Like, I don't think those people are in, are part of the organized, organized like Jewish left in a, some, some certainly are, but I don't think that the majority of them are. Maybe that's wrong, but I, I have a hard time imagining that they are. I think that's a useful reframe in a lot of ways, but what you both said, I mean, I think, first of all, there's this question, like, I think many of us saw these results in some ways as like sort of something to be enthusiastic about, or like the fact that like, I mean, obviously we have our qualms about some of like the terminology and what it means. And I think we're, that's what's really interesting about like thinking through all of this and like where people are getting their information and what it means about political education. But like when, you know, when we first heard this apartheid number, I think we were pretty cheered that like, it looks like the American Jewish public writ large and younger people are kind of moving in this more left direction. Um, but I think it kind of is a useful reframe the this, what you're talking about, Ari, in terms of like the limits of polling to not necessarily, you know, to not take this as an, as a victory, as an already won victory, because I think like, I don't know, kind of, I think it really does relate to a lot of these left debates, including these debates about, you know, if if we get too used to saying, oh, we're organizing for things that people already really like so much, like Medicare for all, it's just popular, we just need to like, will it and you know it's it can we can we already have the power because it's so popular then there becomes something that maybe isn't always popular in polling like defund the police and then people say well we shouldn't do it because it's not popular and I think we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago um when talking about you know a different ADL poll that was you know less favorable and what it means to have to like or like about even about um I think when we talked about the Pew poll or like what it means to have to organize for things even when people aren't necessarily on board and I think like it's a useful corrective to say, okay, this means there might be more of an appetite for what we're talking about, but also, you know, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of actually mobilizing people. And then also, I think that's in some ways where the power, this question of power analysis comes back because it's like, right now, the politically mobilized and powerful people are that 
loud minority, right? Like the, the centrist, the like dying centrist, right centrist Zionist Israel advocacy constituency. I mean, that's the people that our legislators are, cons those are the people who often make the most noise. Um, and I think that is starting to change and it will, you know, I don't know. So I, but I think that like that kind of shows like, like there's a sense in which like this result shows that these institutions are less relevant than ever. And yet when it comes to like what they're, able to do in terms of how they can shape policy, they're still quite relevant. But also the, the challenge that they face, I feel like actually isn't maybe that different from the one that the like left-wing organizations face in the end, which is that like we live in a country where barring like a few exceptional things like the last, the 2020 elections, political participation in America is very low. There are very few almost none mass political organizations in the United States, participatory communal life. I mean, this is like old school communitarian stuff about like bowling, bowling alone. But like it, it is true that there are not associational structures in American life that can get people from answering a question in a poll to like going to a protest or joining an organization to do something about it. And I think that what in it from coming out of very different directions, what the Jewish establishment organizations and also the left wing organizations are facing is like we're not we're having trouble getting people to do stuff as Jews that like that is not actually a salient mobilizing political identity or there aren't forms of organizational life that are touching enough people for this to be felt. So you end up with rallies that are like under attended because those organizations don't have like a mass organic base that they can draw on. But that also happens with the left all the time. Like it's very funny to me to see them in that. Cause like we've all, I feel like we've all been in situations where like they we're just smart enough not to try to call a rally on the national mall for God's sakes. Like we're like grand army plaza. We can fill that with a couple hundred people, you know? <laughs> right. But that's like an experience of like a history of losing after a long time where we like learned how to modify the optics and they're getting used to it on the other side where like they used to be able to fill a mall, but now you can't, it's much harder to fill the mall with people as Jews. I want to ask one more question on, um, this, on this note, which is a which is about whether Jewish um, establishment groups or or just like whether Jewish groups in general have a responsibility to be democratic, you know, I mean, like uh, I was very annoyed. I don't I don't want to talk too much about Yehudo Kurtzer on this podcast because I feel like although I, I I do notice that he talks about us a lot on his podcast, so I guess we're each other's favorite. Uh, bugbear. Um, but, uh, he had this tweet basically about like kind of basically being like, well, I guess like the Jewish communal leadership isn't listening to the Israelites who, uh, made the golden calf or whatever, something like that, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, I find that a very annoying sentiment. Um, but there is a legitimate question about whether they ever purported to be democratic and whether they should be. Um, and also like whether our institutions are democratic. I mean, like, you know, most of the Jewish left is composed of nonprofit organizations, some of which are membership organizations. I mean, most of them purport to be membership organizations. And I think they have a, a very engaged constituency, but it's not, they're not mass membership organizations. Um, and, and also, like, you know, I don't know, democracy is okay, uh, but ultimately we want good things to happen, um, and that's not always popular. Like, I think we've known that from being on the kind of 
pro-Palestine left for, for a long time. So, um, you know, does it matter, like, that these organizations are not democratic or, like, you know, in what, what if they were? Would, would that make a difference, you know, if they were supporting or if they were garnering the support of just their constituents? I mean... Right. Well, it is this question, like, if we say we are a 20 percent block of people or we, you know, many of us, there is a big 20 percent block of people who want one democratic state in Israel-Palestine that is big enough to be included. Then are we also saying this basically the 20 percent of American Jews who want basically an apartheid state in which Palestinians are subjugated, who like explicitly want that, but like more of that with annexation of the West Bank, are they should they have equal representation? And I mean, I would actually argue that right now those people have more representation in, in, uh, functionally in these institutions. Oh, they definitely do. I mean, like, just to say, I, I mean, I just want to make it clear that, like, when American Jewish organizations talk about pluralism, they include that 20 percent that wants annexation and exclude the 20 percent that wants equal rights. Um, you know, so there's no there's no equivalency in terms of who's in and who's out of, of the dominant conversation. Um, but still, I mean, these polls are representing equal numbers from like a purely, I don't know, maybe this is the wrong question to be asking, but. I think it's a useful question. And I mean, I think so far it's been a point of strategy. I mean, like, because the truth is they're not democratic. I mean, it's the same thing as that happens with Medicare for all. It's like, you know, we can see, like, I mean, it's very useful right now to be like, these are all these people who support this. You don't speak for Jews. Like, that is just such an easy strategic point to make. And I mean, I think can really, can really do a lot of work to sort of advance the things that we're interested in and advance justice when we can say more people, you are not doing what the people want. I think that's like a very compelling argument in American discourse. I do you think that there might be times? I mean, but then also it's like, do we look at the Pew results and say only 10% of American Jews support BDS? So like, that's out? Like, so it is, I mean, it's not something that we can, I think, use as, I think like the problem is when pluralism in itself becomes perhaps the driving value, which I think, because it's not always necessarily political. I mean, it's, it's a particular political position in terms of, a pro-democracy as a structure position, but saying that an organization is really pluralistic, I think has stood for this leftist idea in the Jewish world for a long time because left groups are the ones that are excluding. Um, but actually, that, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't functionally always mean that. Um, and I think it's true in like the US too. I mean, right now, if we say we want the United States to be more democratic, we mean that like, we want to curb the power of the right because if this country were more democratic, you know, liberals would be, in power or whatever. But, you know, I think that, like, we can't con confuse, like, situation for, like, the essence of what that means. And um, and I guess it is it's kind of interesting. Some organizations are confronting that right now because I a piece I have out today, um, or I guess will be last week by the time this podcast comes out, but, like, about these, like, more progressive organizations like Abodah and Repair the World that have kind of actually been pluralism pluralist in fact in this way that most organizations aren't and that they really do include like kind of a big tent of like people with various opinions on Zionism and now you know a lot of participants are kind of saying well you're this isn't enough you need to actually stand up and say something about you know about Israel about Palestine you can't just ignore it 
Um, but that also means maybe they can't be a big tent because then maybe like the more traditional Zionists like aren't going to that's not going to work as a place for them. That's getting a little bit away from the democracy question. But I think it is a bit about like this sort of question, like the democracy question goes hands in hands with the pluralism question. And so it, you do kind of run into a wall there. I mean, I guess I would say I don't I, I, like, I don't believe in there being like cross Jewish uh, organizations, if that makes sense. Like, I think one of the one of the if you look at the broader history of American Jewish politics, there were all of these kinds of associational organizations that had like a range of different political valences, whether they were you know socialist or communist or revisionist Zionist or Zionist Marxist or you know or religious like religious Zion. Like, there were a lot of organizations in the United States that existed, and there was not an expectation that they would all agree about things and. And I think that it was better <laughs> that, like, I think it is also a, it's also a historical to expect that all Jews are going to agree on issues of politics. And that's never been true in history. And like some of the most, you know, um, generative, but also ferocious political disputes in Jewish history are famously between Jews. And we just had Tisha B'Av. That's like the Ur, Ur, Ur version of this, like the, it, like part of the, the Jewish traditional corpus. But like, you know, you can go back to Eastern Europe when the Bundists are at odds with the Zionists who are at odds with the, who are both at odds with the Orthodox establishment and the shtetl. I mean, there was infighting. And I think that like all of the pre-existing Jewish communal infrastructure has basically died and what's left are the legacy organizations. And so the legacy organizations are operating on a terrain without any real counterparts. But I also think part of that is a product of the particular kind of liberalism that we have in America. And American, um, the American political system wants easy to identify communal interest groups. I mean, that's why like there's this tick that I hate in journalism about the black community or the Jewish community or the Latino community, because power wants these easily nameable communities that can can kind of dole out like favors to in terms of support. Um, But that always leads to like a flattening of the of those quote unquote communities. And it can never do justice to what their actual politics are. Um, and it also like leaves the people on the margins of those communities at the mercy of like whoever has managed to be the power broker gate, like at the front of those like so, quote unquote communities. So I, I have like a whole distaste for, I mean, there's like the communalization of, of politics in that way. I think it would be better if we, if like the Jewish community was comprised of a lot of like mutually exclusive, um, political and confessional like denominations and groups that didn't have to come together. I mean, but that's not. I think it would lead to a more vibrant communal life because there wouldn't be an expectation that we have to represent everyone. We just represent ourselves. Um, yeah. But we, that's not what we have. But amen to that. I mean, like, let's stop trying to be, <laughs> let's stop. I, I mean, like, you know, it's actually really funny because someone just came to me because they're going to be working on a, um, let's call it like a new JCC that they want to be very inclusive and they were asking my advice and I honestly think that they are fucked. You know, I mean, like, there's just no way to include the, the, everybody in this, you're going to lose, you know, like you have to kind of decide who you're for. Um, I think it will be interesting to see people start to try to practice a more radical pluralism that doesn't redline out leftists. Um, but I think that, 
I think it may prove impossible, at least at this particular juncture in human history, uh, maybe at all of them. I think that loops us back nicely to the no fear rally, because that kind of I think a lot of I mean, they were trying to be pluralist about this and it just totally fell apart. I mean, the leftists didn't want to get involved because of the right wing people there, but like the, the right wing couldn't even stand to be around like the liberal centrists uh, or to get in line with their messaging. And I mean, it just it just collapsed. And the and then the you know, the Biden represent administration representative came on stage and then the Trumpists booed her. And so it's just like, yeah, it's just I don't know. I don't think. Yeah, I think you're you both are right that I think that's a potent example of why it's very hard to do that kind of that kind of work. Well, listen, I think I think we absolutely have to talk about Ben and Jerry's. Uh, if you if you have been living under a, a Jewish rock, uh, you may not know that Ben and Jerry's decided not to sell ice cream uh, in settlements and uh, the Israeli president Isaac Herzog called this the new terrorism and Yair Lapid asked the United States to enforce its anti-BDS laws uh, against um, against both Ben and Jerry's and Unilever, which, uh, you know, in true American fashion or whatever multinational corporation fashion is like 60,000 brands. Um, and. Yeah, I mean, people are really freaking out. <laughs> oh, well, in, in my favorite example, uh, an Australian kosher certifier uh, basically said that they're going to remove their kosher certification, that Ben & Jerry's is no longer kosher. Um, so, yeah, what's up with that? What do you guys think? <laughs> I think think to connect really quickly to something that Josh said before that I've been thinking about on this is this idea that like a lot of people are saying in response to the JEI survey, oh, we just need to improve Israel education. And I mean, there's no, Israel education among Jews cannot get any farther right than it already is, right? Like it's already just like very pro-Israel. Like, so maybe, I mean, they might, they might be saying that, who knows? I don't know what David Harris at the AGC thinks, but I, it seems like part of what they're saying is like, we need to do a better job of like, you know, giving kids a little bit of a morsel about the occupation and like, be honest about that. And then they won't like freak out and go anti-Zionist. And it's like, maybe they want to, they're like, we need to try this strategy so that we like teach them in this still very Zionist way that there's an occupation, but like that they won't call it apartheid. But like, they can't like my take from this Ben and Jerry's like, like they can't do it like they cannot even look. I mean, that doesn't work for the strategy, like to even be like, OK, this is just a boycott of the settlements. This is not like they're not the right wing or like the Zionist machine cannot handle that kind of like contradiction or like that kind of acknowledgement, like even like the centrists in Israel are going to are freaking out and basically saying that, like, you know, this is terrorism, what Ben and Jerry's is doing. This is an attack on all of Israel. This is an attack on all of the Jewish people. Um, and so I think, yeah, like the the Israel, like the Zionist um, consensus is not able to hold this sort of like actual legitimate, like anti-occupation rhetoric in any sort of way. It just, they can't, like they, they have to go into freak out mode. And I mean, I think there's, I don't think it's just like only an emotional response. I think there's like strategic reasons for that as well, but it just sort of shows like, you know, what really happens when push comes to shove and they have to try to like defend the settlements, like they're going to defend the settlements. Yeah. Um, we, we were, we were talking at our meeting this morning about how, 
um, BDS organizers have often been very wary of boycotts that are applied to only the occupied territories um, because of the way that they legitimize the distinction between the territories and the inside Green Line Israel um, in a way that's not really like doesn't really have any political weight to it. Um, But I was so struck by this because it actually seems like because because something that um, that I think many liberal Zionists will say um, who oppose BDS is that well, like sure, like they, basically, I think they are they are actually um, uh, and they've sort of absorbed some of that same logic, and and they will say, you know, well, sure, I would. Um, I would I would support boycotting companies um, that work with the that do business in in the territories, um, but you know, but that's different, right? Um, and and in fact, what has happened in this instance is that the there has been such an outcry, um, uh, you know, with like. A, like, I mean, just sort of within the the American Zionist world sort of writ large with, you know, I mean, these like tweets going around of like uh, uh, parodies of Ben and Jerry's flavors, like, you know, and anti-cement or what have you that are like, it just feels like very unhinged because like, obviously this is a company that's sort of famously run by Jews, like it is sort of a Jewish brand. And I think that that is maybe why um, there is such panic about it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, it, it, it sort of occurred to me um, just through watching this unfold that I wonder if there's actually some like gray area in a lot of people's minds about what it means to do business in the territories and like whether that means like producing things there or selling things there because like soda stream famously um is produced in the territories and that has in fact been like a you know a sort of like there's been a large-scale bds campaign against soda stream for that reason and well, they moved it back in. They moved SodaStream back back in the green line. Oh, okay. Or sorry, there. So there, but there was there was initially, right? I mean, and there's still. I mean, the boycott still stands, but like the but that was the original. Um, uh, like, uh, I mean, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I I thought that that it was a relatively rare like uh, international brand that was actually like based uh, where production was actually based in the territories at, at some point. And that seems to me different from, um, from companies like selling in the occupied territories, which I would imagine actually flies under the radar much more easily. And I would imagine that there are a lot of liberal Zionists who would say, you know, well, sure I would support, 
boycott of companies that do business there, but don't haven't actually thought about the fact that that also means selling and not and not just producing. And so um, and so in that sense, I wonder if Ben and Jerry's actually just really like scored kind of a, a big political win by like effectively like doing something that maybe many people would have thought they would have been doing to begin with, which is just like not selling to settlers. And uh, um, and I wonder if that will, you know, like become a trend. And that seems like a sentiment that's, you know, that people like Mohammed Al-Kurd are, are saying um, on social media right now. Well, it kind of happened by accident. Like there's this amazing interview. I don't know if it's translated into English that the Haaretz journalist Nir Gontaj did with the guy who runs the factory of Ben and Jerry's in Israel, which is in a place called Beretuvia, and it's like in the south of Israel, I believe. Um, and Nir Gontarj calls this guy, and he's like, I heard that Ben and Jerry's asked you not to sell um, uh, your ice cream in the West Bank. And he's like, that's true. And I told them that I wouldn't do it. And so they're not renewing my contract. So there's not going to be Ben and Jerry, right? Like it was this thing where, and like the interview is really interesting because the Haaretz journalist is pushing this guy who runs the factory. He's like, but you know that the settlements aren't in the, aren't in Israel and your contract with Ben and Jerry's Unilever is only Israel. So like, He's like, no, but I don't see a difference. And I sell, I, I'm going to sell wherever Israelis are. And then near Gontarsh asked him, like, but you wouldn't sell them your ice cream to like Israelis in New York or Berlin because they're and not in Israel. And he's like, no, but I sell, he's like, I'm not a jurist, but I'm going to sell them. Ben, Unilever's not going to tell me that I can't sell my ice cream to like Israelis in West Bank settlements. And so he, there's not going to be, he like is going to not get his contract renewed basically with Ben and Jerry's net, like international. That's the, that's like the, the story, uh, there. And like, I think on the, I think that if that's been lost in the news cycle, it's because everyone's trying to spin this in their own way. Like the hardcore BDS activists want this as a BDS win because it's going to lead to like Israel itself having an issue and the Zionist, advocates want it as like are freaking out because they're saying like they're boycotting they also want to blur the distinction over the green line um and i think like the way that israeli officials are talking about this whether it's gilad ardan who's the ambassador of the un or um yair lapid who's the foreign minister um like not drawing a distinction and saying like this is boycotting israel like they that's a reflection of the fact that like the green line is not a lived reality um in Israeli politics. Um, and like, that is something that American Jews are still coming to terms with. Like, that's what you see in the polling about like, you know, 60% of American Jews still say they support a two state solution. But, and that is, that's where like, you do have a group of people who are very unhinged from reality because the green line is, you know, not a thing for a lot, for, for most Israelis. But the other thing I wanted to say about Ben and Jerry's is like, you could also see Ben and Jerry's as like telling the whole story of American Judaism and like two people's stories. Like they're these Ashkenazi guys who are boomers, so maybe their parents or grandparents come from the old country. They assimilate, they get into the like the like counterculture and go to sell their funky monkey in in uh, in Vermont and end up. I think it's chunky. Monkey. I don't know. I don't <laughs> eat ice cream really that much. Uh, you don't eat ice cream. You don't watch movies. <laughs> I'm lactose. I'm lactose intolerant. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> um, um, 
And then, you know, they like become new leftists and have like this social justice bent on their food company. And it ends with them in like the last quarter, third of their life, like becoming anti-Israel, <laughs> anti-Israel anti advocates. And I think and the reason why I think that's important is because I think that and this is just trying to like tie the polling thing together. I think that these polls and also the the way the establishment organizations talk about American Jews understates the degree of assimilation and like last la and uh, um, erosion of Jewish distinctiveness in America. This process is actually much farther along than people are willing to acknowledge. And like the establishment organizations have kind of constructed this Potemkin Jewish community where things still matter, but like it doesn't matter. Ben and Jerry's as an emblem of like boomer, uh, American Jewry has like divorced itself functionally from Zionism and like no one, most American Jews don't actually care. And that I think is the story. I mean, to be, to be fair, like Ben and Jerry's is run by like a, like, I don't even know where Ben or Jerry are and, or where they are on this. And they certainly aren't. I, I mean, I would be surprised if they were like very involved in this kind of, um, this kind of decision. Although I recognize the symbolism of it being particularly a Jewish Com company like in the American imagination on some level, just because I think it's emblematic of the week that they just had and the real uh, schism in the Jewish community and the and the fact that it's going to be a lot harder to holistically dismiss all of this stuff as anti-Semitic. I, I do think that the question around, I, I mean, first of all, like those 60% of, of Jews who still support the two-state solution, that's roughly the amount of people who said that they support conditioning aid um, and making sure that none of it goes to the settlements, that's a pretty consistent position. And in fact, like, I don't think I've seen that many people who are in that camp, like, speaking out against this Ben and Jerry's thing on the whole. I mean, I think that actually those people have been extremely consistent, uh, you know, like your really hardcore two-staters who are like, you know, kind of like the liberal moms and dads, I think probably don't care if they sell to the settlements because they see those people right or wrongly. I mean, a lot of them are not just religious fanatics. They're just economic settlers or whatever, but they don't relate to those people in, in the territories. I think the, the part where it gets interesting or the place where it gets interesting is like the blurring in other places. You know, A, we've talked about the um, Palestinian response generally being like excited about the kind of boycott that they would in the past basically be like, this sucks. And I wonder on some level if that's just a result of BDS not having the, the number of wins or like the opening that, you know, this providing an opening for more BDS wins when like so far there really haven't been that many of this sort. Um, and also like the kind of blurring on the edges of American politics, like someone like Bill de Blasio being like, I'm boycotting Ben and Jerry's, even though that's like a pro settlement position. Like why, why would Bill de Blasio need to, t you know, as a Democratic politician who's not even running for anything, need to take that position? So I think where it gets weird is just sort of like the, the people who you um, are, are just like, you know, things are getting weird now with with the question of like, is it Israel or is it not Israel? You know, and and. Uh, I think we all agree that it is functionally Israel. And so that does make this a weird a weird situation. I think also not to get too in the weeds, but just like the 
tension also just like this specific, like I think actually in some ways what Josh is talking about, like the sort of specificity of Ben and Jerry's matters here just because it's not really Ben and Jerry themselves anymore, as Ariel was saying, but I think, I don't know, like I think somebody apparently tried to get them involved in it recently. And I think like they've said apparently in like recent years to JVP activists that they want wanted Ben and Jerry's out of selling in the territories, but they don't have control. But they're, even if Ben and Jerry themselves are out, I mean, the independent board that Ben and Jerry's has now is like a very activisty board. And part of the reason that people were calling on uh, Ben and Jerry's so intensely is that Ben and Jerry's has really positioned itself as like the social action company that like releases statements about, you know, systemic racism in the United States and has a Bernie flavor and all of that stuff. And so they were really like coming under fire for hypocrisy around um, their role in Israel-Palestine. And that's like basically their Twitter account just like went dark for like two months when people started hounding them uh, during the um, the violence going on in Gaza, they just went dark. And then the first time they reappeared was with this statement. But, you know, then they kind of had this dispute with um, Unilever, where Unilever insisted on putting in this line that they were going to continue to sell in Israel. And Ben and Jerry's independent board didn't even want to say that. I think they actually want to reconsider whether they're going to sell in Israel proper at all. Um, but Unilever was like, and you can see in Unilever's also statement about the whole thing on their website, I mean, they're very, like, freaked out about it, and they're like, this was Ben & Jerry's independent board. And so there's all this, like, kind of, like, intra-corporate conflict based on the fact that this was an acquisition of a smaller company that has this very activisty reputation. And so I think it does kind of say, like, I think this is, you know, it, in a lot of ways a major symbolic victory for BDS, but they're also getting a lot of backlash and, like, if this was just Unilever and I'm not like Ben and Jerry's with its, you know, kind of independent board and it's like sort of social action brand, I don't think that I don't know if they would have been convinced. I think that they're part of the reason that it took so long for Ben and Jerry's to do this in the first place. And I think a really giant company like that is going to have be a lot um, less eager to like, you know, piss off the Israeli government or whatever. I think that obviously there is this thing now where companies are trying really hard to look woke because that's like, more popular. And I, so like, you know, if there is enough image damage from these kinds of boycotts that can matter, but I think like, it's sort of interesting to think about, you know, in a lot of ways, the way that Ben and Jerry's is unique and like this interaction with Unilever and like whether or not that can be replicated in larger companies. And like, maybe it doesn't matter because if people like see the brand, you know, I don't know, like maybe in the popular minds, it doesn't matter as much, but I think that like, in terms of, you know, how to influence these larger companies, it's relevant. Well, maybe just to wrap up, I'll just end with a question, which is, and Mari just answered uh, for herself, but um, what do we see the result on this? What do we see as the results of this? You know, like, are there any prognostications about what this potentially means? Um, you know, obviously no one is going to die without ice cream, without Ben and Jerry's in, in the West Bank, but, um, you know, and like... I, we're not we, we don't have enough information to know how this is going to affect Ben and Jerry's bottom line in terms of, um, you know, whether it hurts or helps the company to an extent that actually changes things. Um, but what do we think in terms of like the symbolic ground and, and the economic, if anyone has a prognostication there? I think that even if it's going to be a lot, I, I, I don't think it means it's just like a total, you know, wash or that it doesn't matter because 
other companies like Unilever aren't necessarily going to do the same thing. I mean, I think it is a pretty major, like, energizing victory for the BDS movement. And, like, because Ben & Jerry's is such, like, a popular company in the U.S., it's going to, like, get a lot of people paying attention to this. And that definitely might kind of reanimate fights around around BDS here. I mean, I think then the question is, does that translate to a material impact on um, Israeli policy and, you know, that's something that people are, I think, really debating in the movement now. And then also, um, I think that the newsletter interview I did with Lara Friedman has a lot of interesting um, thoughts about, like, you know, when the Israeli right creates this, like, backlash, do they make this so hard for any other companies to want to do it? And also, like, what will this mean for BDS laws in the United States? So I recommend checking that out. But, you know, I think that, like, it's a little bit more complicated than just saying no other companies will do this. But it's all worth thinking about. I was talking with Edo Conrad, who's the editor of 972, about this recently, and he said that he thought it was interesting that Ben and Jerry's decided to do this and studied the um, the Airbnb case in advance, and after seeing what Airbnb had gone through, decided to do it anyway. And I think that you know the optimistic read of this is that the more companies that do it the more they realize they can weather the storm and the more that will do it and if anything like maybe i don't know there's some maybe in some perverse behavioral psychology way like having scandals about your company is good for business because now everyone's talking about Ben and Jerry's and like they're going to see like a, a sales bump and then that'll be reported in like their quarterly reports and it'll be like you know what actually occasionally doing like a social justice thing that causes a controversy is good like all these there are all these people who are at least on my social media posting pictures of themselves eating Ben and Jerry's Mari said she couldn't get it in Brooklyn I do say, like, okay, the fact that the Walgreens right next to me is, like, really bad at ever restocking anything, I don't want to, like, make major political prognostications from that. But it, I did have to go okay, to, like, okay, three fine. stores until I found Ben & Jerry's at a bodega. So take from that what you will. Look, maybe Mehdi Hassan is tweeting about eating Ben & Jerry's on, you know, like, whatever. They got a lot of free advertisement. And I think, like, the whoever makes decisions at Ben & Jerry's is going to have to weigh, like, whether Texas, China, like cut its in which I just saw an announcement about this, like Texas trying to cut out its investments in yeah. Unilever is like worth the whatever. And I, I think like also in the near term, it would, it's going to depend on whether BDS activists have the follow through to like take these suits when Texas does this to whatever kind of legal recourse is possible, because that's really what did it for the anti-apartheid movement um, with South Africa was that you had all of these fights happening at the state level and activists were kind of sharing experiences and there was a way there were people who were just engaged and for a long time in like these sort of divestment boycott practices. Um, I don't know if BDS in America has the same organizational infrastructure that the anti-apartheid movement had in the 80s. I don't think it's quite I don't think it's there yet. And so it's also possible that this, you know, kind of ends up being um, a media firestorm and then goes away uh, for a while and doesn't really make an impact. But I, I think like the other obstacle that people just have to under, I, I think like people are still reckoning with when it comes to BDS is that the Israeli economy is insulated from any real impact so far on this because it doesn't depend on Unilever's like Ben and Jerry's single factory selling, you know, making ice cream in Beartuvia. And so um, it's a really good PR. It's a really good public like consciousness changing thing, I, tactic from the movement side. But we're nowhere near like Israel facing any sort of like threat to its bottom line. Um, 
And that makes it a lot harder to know where this goes. Like I, I, I definitely am like pessimistic about the ability to make Israel um, feel enough pressure economically to change its policies. I, I, I don't really know what means like what would do that at this point. One one thing I am sort of hopeful about is that if this is the first real test of of the state level anti BDS laws, like which are blatantly unconstitutional, that maybe they will fall in court. Um, and also maybe the people who instituted them will recognize what it actually looks like to uh, enforce them, which would be probably more trouble than any of them actually care to inflict on like uh, corporations, which they, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this. I, I just think like um, it's it's an opportunity to test these laws that like hasn't really come up yet, except for in like very small, isolated cases, as far as I know. And I, I actually wonder about the appetite of like the American judiciary for like and, and also the states themselves for actually having to enforce something like this if it actually came to it. So I, I think that'll be interesting. And and I would actually suspect that it will be defeated. Maybe that's too optimistic uh, in court. Um, well, uh, that is that. Um, thank you for joining us. Please uh, like or review this podcast positively, not negatively. Um, and uh, I hope that you tell your friends so that we can keep doing this. I, you know what I'm doing? I'm like reciting what the yoga teacher on the YouTube videos that I watch says at the end of her um, videos. Yeah, subscribe and like, review, do all those things. Thank you for joining us. This is On the Nose with Jewish Currents. Bye-bye. Can't get enough Jewish Currents? Keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And visit jewishcurrents.org to subscribe and see our latest. A very special thanks to Nathan Salzberg for providing us with the music from his album Landwerk No. 2, and to Santiago Elu Cantero for producing this segment. Thanks for listening. That's all from us.